Good morning. Protest or intimidation? The debate this week as people gathered outside facilities housing asylum seekers and refugees. At the Travel Lodge in Ballymun in Dublin, people chanted, among other things, get them out. On Morning Ireland, reporter Moira Hannan spoke to a 40-year-old asylum seeker from South Africa who has been at the hotel for eight months. We saw the group of people uh, chanting and singing and so when we looked through the windows and then we realised that it was people uh, pointing at us and some of them, you know, um, saying they, they need to go back, they must go back. That's when we realised that, oh, oh, uh, there we go again, we are in trouble. <laughs> so we just moved everyone inside because we also have children there. And then I realised today as I was talking to one of the children, a six-year-old girl, that she kind of understands now what is really happening. So what she said to me was that, so are they going to come inside? What's going to happen? Are they going to shoot us? You know, so I was like, no, 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 nobody's going to shoot you. So that's when I realized that it's now starting to, you know, affect them, the children as well. But... Yeah, people are just scared, honestly. The Department of Integration has confirmed that there are currently 221 asylum seekers staying at that Ballymun travel lodge. Families, couples and single people. And also nine children. Joining Mary, Lucky Cambola from Maasai, the movement of asylum seekers in Ireland. How large, uh, Lucky, was the protest that you witnessed? Uh, be- be- before the, just in front of the of the hotel... There's there's a there's a there's a clear uh, uh, park that is there. So that was full, and uh, what surprised me as well was the the the, the evident uh, children that were in the protest who were, I would say, 12 and 13 years, and uh, it it just becomes chaotic. Yes, the guards were there, but from what my observation, no no, no nobody just cares about. And the could you hear what people were chanting? Well, send them home. Send them home. That is their message, loud and clear. So that message gets heard by the people that are seeking up, uh, for protection. That island says, send them home. From Tuesday's Morning Ireland, and those protests continued during the week. On Thursday, Drive Time's Barry Lenehan reported live into the programme, although many outside the hotel refused to speak to him, saying they didn't trust him to report the facts. However, one local woman did speak. I'm just here because uh, help the Irish out as well, because they, they're unvetted as well coming over, and there's too many men, do you know what I mean? Women and uh, kids, not a bother, do you know what I mean? But we're not getting told the whole truth, we're really not. And with them being around so close to schools and all, and people are changing their job routines and all because of it, you know, because we're too scared to walk around Ballymun at the end of the day. It's just not fair. It really when, isn't. When did all this start? They're supposed to be in the hotel the last seven or eight months, yeah. I think. Yeah, but I mean, I only recently seen it there the past couple of months, but it's really coming out now. I don't know why they're even getting paid for it. It's just the most I've ever seen them out, to be honest with you. So it's just a bit, it's a bit funny there. What's the level of feeling in the community? Uh, fear, but we're still coming together as an Irish group, you know, I mean, for Ireland all over. But it's just, we have to get out there. It's just not fair. Unvetted men. We're terrified, really, especially to women. 
do you know what I mean? And the men are getting out there to fight for us as well, our kids' futures as well. Like, what future are they going to have? Do you know what I mean? Like, my daughter's home is on the street as it is, do you know what I mean? And I'm trying to help her as well. I'm trying to get her back home with me. But it's, it's very hard, and she's getting very depressed over it as well, and very suicidal. There's an awful lot of Irish people very suicidal over it as well. You're in Ballymun you know all your I mean? life? Or? I'm in Ballymun probably 35, 38 years now. And I've never seen it this bad. The Irish government, they sold us out to the EU at the end of the day, do you know what I mean? The, the, the Taoiseach uh, has described some of the protests around the country uh, as racist. What, what would you say to that? That's not even a debate, to be honest with you. No, we're just concerned people at the end of the day, do you know what I mean? Very, very concerned. Why on earth is there hundreds of men coming in and they're doing it late at night and they're not even letting us know, they're not even consulting anybody about it. Would a better consultation have made a difference if the government or the department came around and children. Not for men. They should be over there fighting for their own country. Women and children are, are living in that hotel as well. We, we are led to believe. There's not many of them. It's just it's heartbreaking for Ireland. It really is. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm out for helping anybody at the end of the day. Same with all the Irish people are. But not grown men in their 20s and 40s that look military. However, as Barry Lenehan noted, this hotel has been used for accommodation for asylum seekers and others for some time. So was there a particular incident that had triggered this week's protests? Barry got the view of Aoife Gallagher, researcher at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue. The protests in Ballymun, from what I can see, kicked off because a couple of influential far-right accounts online shared a video of a group of men who are allegedly asylum seekers, but it's impossible really to know from the video, who were getting off a bus in Ballymun. They weren't doing anything else. They're simply standing around, you know, getting off a bus. But the video was widely shared online and then framed as evidence of, you know, military-aged men coming in to, you know, quote-unquote, invade the country. And within a number of hours of this video going round online, a protest was being organised on the ground. So this is the kind of same thing that you see over and over again as a kind of something spurs off online and you know there there are networks of these accounts that are say highly proficient at being able to kind of um, rally support online and then organize these kind of protests on the ground as well from drive time on tuesday and yesterday with Claire, independent councillor for Ballyfermot and Drimna Vincent Jackson, whose house was picketed by protesters under the mistaken belief that the local school was housing refugees yesterday morning information to that there was no truth in it but this protest was organised for five o'clock last night and I believe there was a number of them around Dublin and around Ireland they splintered off the main group when the protest was over they came to my house at approximately quarter past six and they stayed for about 20-25 minutes bored and they shouted obscenities they left for about 10 minutes when they went down to the convent down the road and the secondary school and then they came back to my house again for another 10 minutes shouted lots of obscenities, get them out. Uh, they, they said I was a traitor for letting them down. And, uh, you know, uh, and they said lots of other obscenities and anything, what I should do with myself. So from my point of view, I hope the people who were outside my home last night are proud. I've given 32 years service to the people of Ballyfermot as an independent. I, I work night and day for young people, for older people. There's nothing in the area that I'm not involved in. Just to think that people would believe a narrative that's totally incorrect really upsets me, that, that there's no telling these people. Honest, Claire, I do get worried when I see what's happening in our country because uh, we have always been a very welcoming environment for people in the country as a whole. And I just fear for the future that if these groups get some sort of a, a log end that they would they would create mayhem and confusion and use okay. people as cannon, cannon fodder. Councillor Vincent Jackson with Claire Byrne yesterday.
And all week long, politicians, community leaders, activists and many people from these areas all voiced their opposition to this kind of protest and their support and welcome for those coming here seeking asylum. On Wednesday's drive time, political reaction. Cormac spoke to Fianna Fáil Senator Lisa Chambers and Labour Party leader Ivana Bacic. The state has failed to provide adequately uh, social and public services. The state has failed to provide adequately for refugees and those seeking international protection. And the state has failed to communicate uh, effectively uh, with these communities as well. And the state has left the door open for far right uh, to stoke hatred. Is that a fair summary of what, what's happened and the failure? I think there has been a state failure, a failure in particular by the uh, current government, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael indeed have now governed together effectively for the last seven years and have not done what is needed to bring about the levels of state investment in our public services and we've seen that of course most brutally evident this week in the crisis in healthcare with record numbers in, uh, of, of those in, uh, in hospital trolleys, huge distress to so many patients, families and to overburden nurses and healthcare workers so that's a real I suppose sign of the lack of investment that we've ne- that we needed to have in healthcare. We know this ongoing crisis in housing that is again caused by a lack of investment to government failure. But I think, Cormac, you know, there are a small number of individuals who are trying to conflate the absolutely justified anger and frustration that so many people feel about housing, about healthcare, about lack of public services, trying to conflate that and misdirect public mm-hmm. anger and public frustration at the wrong and at a, a most vulnerable target, okay. which, is asi- which is those who are seeking before refuge and asylum. We, and I think that's we... what we need to condemn. And the same question to Fianna Fáil's Lisa Chambers, who felt that anti-immigration sentiment was not confined to little old Ireland. I, I think even if there were no challenges in terms of housing, you would still have people that would protest and demonstrate um, at people coming into the country from other countries. That's happening in every country across Europe, where it's not unique to Ireland. So it's unfortunate, but it's a reality um, that not everybody is supportive of refugees coming into the country. It's a small number, but they would be there regardless. And I think, you know, assuming that everyone's motivations are the same is also incorrect. So I think conflating the two issues is disingenuous. That's not what's at issue here. Uh, getting information out is key, but also I think, you know, all public representatives have a responsibility, you know, to lead on this, uh, to call it out for what it is, that when we don't want to see that type of demonstration out there where people are, where people are living. But peaceful protest and making your views known is absolutely welcome and it's is always part of our democracy. With Claire on Thursday, Justice Minister Simon Harris, who felt even the word protest was inaccurate. He was going with intimidation. I said that I do find them to be intimidating and the reason I do is, is a very simple threshold that I hold, which is I believe anybody's home should not be the subject of a protest. I hold that across all aspects of, of public discourse. There are people living in those facilities. There are children living there. And I heard indeed on this radio station during the week the fear that some of the children had uh, in those buildings. And I made the point yesterday, if somebody is standing outside your home and shouting, let's shout to get them out, 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 and worse. I don't think there's any citizen who'd look at that and not think that that is intimidating behaviour. And he too believed that many elements of the far right were involved in stoking tensions around migration. However, Claire wondered, might that be just a little too easy? Do you not also need to be careful not to close your mind and close your ears to the people who are concerned 
about services in their community because I was looking last night at some of those social media videos that you described and there were a lot of comments for people from people who are very extreme and then there were comments from people who say I can't get to see the dentist I can't get to see the GP I'm behind people in the queue who are getting access to those services for free I have to pay and I can't get in so if you categorise protesters as being extreme far-right people who are being bussed into areas to protest are you not listening to the people who have genuine concerns. No, you can, you can do both, Claire. And I think we need to very carefully not fall for the trap um, that if you believe it is not decent and wrong and intimidating to turn up at somebody's home and shout about getting them out and roar and shout, particularly in a place where there's children, but indeed with a place where there's any human being, you can have that view <laughs> and you can also believe that we should have an informed, educated, rational discussion uh, about migration in Ireland and in Europe. And what I'm saying to you as Minister for Justice, I have very specific responsibilities that I take extremely seriously about making sure we have a rules-based system in place. These rules are some set internationally, some set European level, some set in Ireland, that those rules are applied effectively and efficiently. That means, that means making sure that when someone comes to our country, they get a quicker decision as to whether they're entitled to protection or not. It also means where somebody isn't entitled to protection that they're asked to leave quicker. Mm -hmm. It means making sure we increase the staffing in the International Protection Office. It means deportation orders recommencing. But it also means making sure, and I've heard migrant rights groups call for this, that people aren't left in limbo. But given that these kinds of protests don't show any sign of abating, where to now? So in the meantime, while you're focused on all of those things, there are children in temporary accommodation who perhaps today might have to stand at a window and listen to someone shouting out, out, out at them after they've been through the trauma of leaving perhaps Ukraine or wherever they've come from. And the state it seems, is not prepared to do anything about that other than monitor the protests. No, I mean, that's, that, that, that wouldn't be a fair characterisation. The state, the, the Gardaí, will make sure that safety in our country is always paramount and that the law is applied. The Gardaí have to address uh, in law uh, a balance of rights, the right to peaceful protest, and obviously the rights that people have not to be harassed, not to be intimidated, to be safe. What I would, though, say to, to local people is please don't fall for this. I mean, these, are not, these people are not people who have your best interests at heart. They're people, in my view, and this is my view, who spread misinformation, um, who seek to divide us, who seek to tell you bits of information that somebody fleeing persecution in the country is to blame for a challenge that you're facing in your family life, to pit one against the other. That is not who we are as a people. It's not that long ago in this country that people can remember others having to leave and go to the States and other places where we were welcomed. So let's not fall for the trap here. Let's have a mature, honest, informed discussion about migration. Let politicians like me and other centrist politicians step up and engage in that. But let's not allow it to be hijacked by people who do not have the interests of these communities at heart. They just visit them every now and again to whip up a frenzy. And, and I am extraordinarily concerned about the impact that that has on the well-being of people in those centres, particularly children who many have come from a traumatic situation. Um, I, I Justice Minister Simon Harris with Claire. Yesterday, Joe opened the faders. I said we have no choice okay. but to take in the Ukrainians because we're members of the European Union. Okay. The European Union has agreed to take in uh, as many Ukrainians as it can cope with. Okay, so, but so it, uh, there's no doubt. Uh, how many more can we take in? Well, uh, we've you, taken you, in about 70,000, 80,000. Are me. we going to take in 200,000? Well, you tell we me. We can't cope with what we have at the moment. Well, the government... I'm from Ballyfermot myself, and I think it's absolutely disgraceful uh, what Vincent Jackson's family had to endure. I think the one thing that is not being acknowledged here in this entire conversation is people in Ireland are very angry. 
because we're experiencing a housing crisis and homelessness mm. beyond the scale that we've ever experienced. And what I say to that is, do not blame the victim. We have people here seeking mm. refuge, and we have always opened uh, refugees and immigrants with, our, with open arms because look at our Irish history, look at our history, and look how many Irish there are around the world. But people are angry and they're frightened and they ha they, the future is uncertain for their children. The housing crisis is that bad. Grown men and women with their children are having to return to their parents' home because it's, they're couch surfing practically. So that's a very scary position for people to be in. Will my children ever have a home? Who knows? But you know what? The government creates housing policy. If you want to protest, if you want to take this into the ring with someone, you need to speak with your government. But I went up to one fella who was a big fella. He was wearing overalls and he had his face covered in a, sort of like a mask. And he was squared up to the guard. So I went up to him and I said, what do you hope to achieve with this? He says, we're hoping to secure a future for our children. Well, I, I strongly suggested to him that he was doing the opposite. And, and he said, what do you mean by that? He said, uh, well, yeah. you're going to Mar Ballymun is a, a place of races, a centre for races. He said, well, I live amongst black people. I live amongst all sorts of people in Ballymun. We don't give a damn. And he says, but I looked around and said, there's, not, there's no people, there's no, there was no brown or black-skinned people on that protest. They were all white. So every argument he made, he made arguments about the crime statistics are up. It's all been done by immigrants. Rape is up. It's all been done by immigrants. And then he settled, He finally said, I won't stop until I get everybody out of that hotel in there. And they weren't consulted. They said they weren't mm. consulted. And I just said to them, you weren't, you weren't consulted to travel out there when it was a commercial entity. There were people coming and going in it and nobody cared where they came from. Mm. Now that it's full of 200 uh, asylum seekers, they're all, all of a sudden they're uh, they're enraged. So he eventually told me to f off, and I realised I was getting nowhere with him. But that's the A and E crisis is horrific, which it is. It's been horrific for a lo for a long time, especially at this I'm time an of year. I'm an A and E nurse. I know okay, all about it's it. It's, yep. The housing crisis is is difficult in lots of places. But what do you say to Shirley saying people? You know, this is the government's fault. No, I don't think it's the government's fault. I do think maybe, like, in relation to policies, maybe the policies haven't been made, but the government couldn't forecast 70,000 Ukrainians coming looking for safety and protection. It's a tiny percentage we take in Ireland compared to the 6.8 or 6.9 million that have fled into Europe. You know, we have 70,000. When I meet people and they tell the story of why they need to come to Ireland, I mean, they get into dinghies and cross mm. into Europe. They die on this route. They are not doing this for benefits, for housing. They're doing it for safety and protection. People seem to think that we never had a housing problem in Ireland prior to this when the Ukrainians, I also worked in Ukraine as a volunteer nurse at the beginning of the war and I mean I met Ukrainian people and they definitely need our protection and security and safety here and I think Just some of the voices from yesterday's live line back in a bit Welcome back We were coming down with Banshee fever this week Martin McDonough, I owe you so much, man. 14 years ago, you put me working with Brendan Gleeson, my dance partner, and you changed the trajectory of my life forever in ways that I begrudgingly will be grateful to you for the rest of my days. Um, 
to work on this film. I, I never expect films to work or to find an audience, and when they do, it's shocking to me. And so I'm so horrified by what's happened around Banshees over the last couple of months in a thrilling kind of way. Um, Brendan, I just I love you so much. I love you so much. To get to, to cohabitate this creative space with you every day, all I did when I came to work every day was aspire to be your equal. I'm not saying I even got there, but the aspiration kept me going. And I thank you for that for the rest of my days also. Kerry, to finally see the world after 20 years of acting, you can forget that piano. To finally see the world after 20 years of acting, find your work now, you're extraordinary. Barry, when you're sharing a house with an actor you're working with, a word of advice, Barry, don't eat his crunchy nut cornflakes and leave him with no breakfast in the morning. Okay, you should never send a man to work on an empty belly. I want to thank Sheila Flitton, who played our band She. I want to thank the cast and the crew and the locals of Inishmore and Ackle Island that brought us in. And there was lines blurred between all of us so that we were just one big family for the betterment of all of our souls on that experience. And uh, lastly, Jenny the donkey, who is, yeah. What a sweet speech. The lovely Colin Farrell accepting his Best Comedy Actor Golden Globe. Banshee's also got Best Picture in the Musical or Comedy Award and Best Screenplay both for Martin McDonough. What a film and name checked. Sheila Flitton, who was all shawls and scowls and dire predictions as Mrs McCormick. A death, huh? Maybe even two deaths. Well, that'll be sad. We shall pray to the Lord. Just neither you nor poor Siobhan will be either of them. Well, is that a nice thing to be saying? I wasn't trying to be nice. I was trying to be accurate. Kind of scary. However, in real life, rather charming. She joined Ray. I'd say you're being Googled all over the place. Oh, and listen, <laughs> text him back all morning. Yeah. Him back. No, because people are going, shit, because it's such a, an unusual name and he said it with such clarity. Oh, look, so the he, people are going, who's who Sheila who Flitton? Who's Sheila Flitton? Why Flitton? would he have done that? I mean, he's, Why would he have done we it? We are very close. I just, we had some kind of, I think, as I said, because of his kindness and me with the broken shoulder. But apart from the broken shoulder, we we could talk about anything. Mm. You know, that kind of a person. He would be like a, a son. In fact, you would talk to someone like that about things more than probably would to your family. But that's the thing. They say you, you're, you'll share more with a stranger yeah, than a yeah. member of your family. But he's not a stranger Not anymore. anymore, he isn't. No. no. Can I tell you? Go on. First day, I arrived, as I said, a bit vulnerable maybe at the reading. I watched Martin and Colin do it. And you know what? I looked at the pair of them and I thought, do you know, we can't act over here at all. And that's a terrible thing to think like when you're an actress and you're going into the film. You you thought you couldn't so act. Br- oh, yes. None of us <laughs> over in Ireland or any, any, because they were so, uh, yeah, yeah. I couldn't believe the magic, yeah. the chemistry between the pair of them. Now, what do you think and what, what are the, what's the chat and the gossip on the WhatsApp groups? I don't know if you're on them, but what about the Oscars now? <laughs> you make me laugh. <laughs> She's Mirren Joseph to be mentioned on the Golden Globe. Yeah. The Oscar, if Colin doesn't got that Oscar, he, oh. Yeah. And he will. Do you think, yeah? He will. <sighs> Sheila Flitton with Ray. No pressure, Colin. No pressure. But what next? Beverly Hills, twinned with Ackle, perhaps. We might even get a visit from Tay-Tay, if the pub is right. Here's Chris McCarthy of Ackle Tourism on Morning Ireland. Do you, do you intend to develop the island further? You know, I'm thinking of what happened in Kerry after Star Wars. Indeed, what happened there after Ryan's daughter way back in the late 60s. And I suppose, you know, Belfast with, with Game of Thrones or Dubrovnik with Game of Thrones. Do you see yeah, well, something similar happening for, to, to Ackle now? You know, we, the, we are, the Banshees we are, Trail. We are, 
Yes, absolutely, and, and and it's currently up up on our website now. Well, now there, there is nothing there in in on the locations at the minute, but we're working closely with with Mayo County Council, Fulch Ireland, and the Wild Atlantic Way, and our own councillor Paul McNamara. We have we we we're we're a work in progress on that. There's there's designs going to to manufacturers, and it's it's really important to get it right, though, Mary. You know, we can't rush into this, but at the same time, do, we have to have it think, ready for the summer. So, do you, do you think Taylor Swift is right, though? that the pub where Gleeson and Farrell sat in contemplation and anger that it should be rebuilt. You know, who might argue with Taylor Swift? So, Have you invited you know, her Swift, over? Of course we have invited her. Yeah, we don't miss a trick, you know, yourself. <laughs> well, but uh, she's, she's a star and she hasn't said yeah or she's nay. She's a star but and Ackle is a yeah. star and they're all stars Absolutely. today. Chris McCarthy, thank you very much. Oh, if this gets any bigger, we will lose the run of ourselves entirely. Now a warning. If you're a drummer, never tell a dancer your anxiety dreams. The drummer, Conor Gilfoyle. The dancer, David Bulger. All on Arena, Wednesday night. I have an, a regular anxiety dream that I'm playing a gig and the drums are either too close to me or else they're too far away from me or that my bass drum is sliding away from me. And it's always the most important gig I have, you know. And, you know, it that I'm doing and it's the one time I can't do it. And, it te- and there tends to be different reoccurring versions of that. So we talked about that. And, and of course, you know, David being David, <laughs> and, uh, ex- explored this idea of moving the drums away from me while I'm trying to play. And it, this is one of the things that happened. Yeah. So you got in and you dismantled the drum kit that yeah. we all know. Like, yeah, it seems kind of like a, the right thing to do because, you know, you're always looking for clues about how, how we can push each other a little bit and I said said yeah let's just remove the drums because you normally see uh, the drum kit set up you see the drummer behind the drum kit it's it's kind of like an armour for them in a way <laughs> so I just slid the drum kit away uh, from Connor and, and spread it out over the room and then we started to explore each drum and each what each drum does in the in the jazz setup and we were able to kind of go through each drum and I realised how much emotion there was actually in the drums and how much vibration that that they affected us. So I was able to take very, very good cues or clues from that. That sounds fascinating, if not a little cruel. But the result of their collaboration, the piece with the drums. And as an example of the power of that instrument, here's Gilfoyle's introduction to a piece drummers out there will know. Big Sid is a, a very famous uh, drum piece that's in the jazz you know, uh, repertoire played by Max Roach. Uh, it was a dedication to Big Sid Catlett. Big Sid Catlett was a swing drummer back in the 1930s, played with Louis Armstrong. And he wrote a tune called Mop Mop that has a very distinctive rhythmic phrase. And Max Roach basically took that uh, rhythmic phrase and turned it into a drum piece. And the idea is that the drums can carry melody, that it can carry structure, that people listen to it don't need the particular pitches to hear the melody, that they hear the the rhythm within the drum set itself.
Oh, that is deadly. And on the new series of Keywords on Sunday night, more deadly. The theme was body language and Wafu Abu Shar brought us this English-Arabic offering. Eyes don't lie. العيون لا تكذب. Eyes don't lie. لغة الجسد. Body language. أمثلة على لغة الجسد. Examples of body language. One. أولا. The head bending in the body language indicates shame and respect. And if it is accompanied by a smile or a laugh, indicate comfort. دليل على عدم الثقة بالنفس تاسعاً لغة اليدين أثناء الحوار يمكن يدل على ثقة بنفسه أو يدل على النجم ثانياً Your walk reflects your personality تعكس شخصيتك تحريك الكتفين ورفع الرأس عند المشي وانتصاب القادر When moving the shoulders and raising the head when walking all signs strength, trust greatness and gravity three the language of the hand during the dialogue can indicate his self-confidence or indicate remorse eyes don't lie from keywords. With Ryan on Wednesday, a woman called Sarah de Lagarde and a story of how your life can change in an instant. Last September, it was a Friday, the end of a busy week, and London-based Sarah went to get the tube home. And I remember sitting in the in, in, in my seat in the tube carriage and I was really tired and uh, I felt, oh, I'm just going to rest my eyes two minutes. And then I woke up um, at the end of the line and I panicked. So I woke up and I thought, oh no, I missed my stop. This is, this is not great. So I rushed out and realized where I was. Um, I was at the overground station, High Barnard. And, um, and then I thought, well, this is the end of the line. I need to get back onto the same tube. So it takes me back to, um, into London. And so I ran. Um, but because it, it had rained so much, there were um, puddles on the station and I slipped. I lost my footing and I slipped, uh, tripped and fell into the closing door of the tube. The, the tube was there. Yes, it was about to depart. And so as I as I tripped and fell, the, the doors were closing. And I remember hearing the beep beep sound of the of the closing door. And I fell against it and um, I broke my nose and my, my two front teeth. And instead of falling backwards, I slid sideways into the gap between the platform and the train. Brace yourself. Her injuries were horrific. Your nose is broken. Your teeth are shattered. And the beeps are going. What next? Well, the train departed and I found myself lying on the on the ground. So in between the railway tracks and the platform and there's a slight curve. And I, I just um, rolled myself into that curve. Uh, I remember thinking, I can't feel my right side. I looked to the right um, at my arm and I realized that it was gone. Um, I didn't know about the foot. That was kind of a surprise afterwards. But um, at that point, it had taken my arm and my leg, my foot on the right side. Okay. I'm just trying to get th- get my head around the 
the physicality of that, how did your foot and arm remain with the tube at the risk of <laughs> going into <laughs> shocking detail? <laughs> but but had, 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 you, they weren't in the door or anything like that. They, they just got caught up no, in no, there. They, yeah. they, I, I was lying on the ground when the tube departed. And so basically the, the wheels flattened my, my, my right arm and, and my foot. So it basically crushed it. And then the, the train left the station and I was still on, you know, on okay. the on the gravel there. Strangely enough, adrenaline is a is an amazing drug that our, our bodies produce and I couldn't feel any pain. And even though it was a Friday evening with earphones and chatter, no one on the platform heard her cries. I managed to to retrieve the phone and I tried to call for help, but the phone wouldn't recognise my face because I had broken my nose, it was full of blood. Then I tried to um, type in my, my, my code and it didn't recognise my, my fingerprints because the phone was wet. And so I had to, to, um, to resort to, to shouting for help. So, yeah, I, I shouted, um, somebody please help me. My name is Sarah and I don't want to die. And what was going through your mind, A, as you were shouting and B, in between the shouting? So, weirdly enough, I was very, very focused. I, my only thought was, I am not supposed to be lying here. Uh, I'm not supposed to be dying. I'm, I'm meant to go home and be with my, my children and my husband. So in my mind's eye, I saw my children's faces and I was so determined. I thought, I just climbed Kilimanjaro. I will not die in a dirty ditch in, you know, High Barnard. <laughs> But, as if she wasn't dealing with enough, another train was coming down the tracks. Yeah, there was a moment I, I almost felt like, are you kidding me? You must be kidding me. There's another train coming in. It's like, no, no way, I'm just trying to get out of it. Um, so so I, had, I had a moment, I felt that, and then it was actually terrifying because you could see the two lights coming closer and closer and the sound of a, of a train is, is, yeah, that, that still haunts me. What did you do? Uh, when you saw it and heard it coming closer and closer? I tried to push myself against the wall as much as I could so that the train wouldn't get me again. She had the presence of mind to try to calm her body and her breathing to conserve her energy. And after 15 minutes, she was heard and saved. Now she has two amputations, one above the elbow, the other below the knee. Do you think this has sunk in yet? it being only in September, uh, or do you think that something is going to land, a moment of maybe more profound existential realisation might come later? Um, I don't know about that. I know that what helped me was that I was conscious throughout all of all of the, the, the accident. And so for me, it was easier to come to terms with it. In the first two weeks, it was quite tough, um, but... But now I, 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 I think I've got a grip on it. So I think now I, I still have moments where I'm very um, sad and I grieve my, my, my missing limbs, but I'm also the kind of person who says, OK, this happened, but I can't really dwell on it. I'm not going to be a victim. I'm going to you know, make the best, make the most of it. That, that's, that's what I'm thinking now. Um, tell me about how you feel about life and living since your recovery? Well, I'm absolutely grateful that I'm still alive. I, I still, I think about the accident on a daily basis, but not in a bad way, but in the way that I am grateful. Every time I look at my children, I just, yeah, I'm 
very, very lucky that I'm alive and I'm conscious of that. So I look at my children and you know, I want to spend time with them. I think they're beautiful. I look at my husband and I'm so excited to be to be yeah, to be here, to be alive. So I almost all of the little things that would annoy me maybe before, all of that has gone out of the window and now yeah. I try to really enjoy my life. Isn't it extraordinary how we should all feel like that every day without having to lose an arm and a foot in a train station? Exactly. And that, that's one of the reasons why and I'm quite happy to talk to you, Ryan, today. Sarah Lagarde with wine and an extraordinary story. And a reminder that, yes, we should be grateful for the little things. Stop, smell the flowers, breathe deep and savour. Or we could short circuit all of that and just buy stuff. Because, yes, shh, whisper it, that too feels good. But resist, says Connor Pope. Try out a spend nothing day. You can do it. And it sounds like a really dull thing to do, but if you just say, okay, on this day, this day, and this day, this week, I'm not going to spend a bean. I'm not going to spend a cent. And you just start working out exactly how much money you're spending, where you're spending your money. You you draw up lists, you look at your incidental spending, you look at your bank statements, you just go through it all. And it's all about giving yourself, about empowering yourself to a degree. So just be a little bit more mindful about where your money's going. Mindful spending. Or just put a tax on the word mindful. But how to dodge them because one way or the other they're going to find you. Getcha, getcha, getcha. Adam Maguire joined Claire and shone a light into the workings of the algorithm. And if advertisers can find the phone in your bag, they can better target you for ads to buy things. I don't know if we want to go down the road of, you know, whether your smartphone is listening to you. We've, you know, people have had that conversation quite a lot. It still does feel like that. It, it does feel it? like that. But the reality is probably a little bit scarier is that the fact that your smartphone will might know your location and it will know that you're near someone else whose location it knows as well. And their interests are X, Y, Z. So your interests might be X, Y, Z as well. And it, so it's actually a far more complicated picture than, than simply listening to you. Uh, it, and I said part of it is because if you have these beacons, they're called, that are pinging from your phone, it yeah. can figure out your location. And then it can say, well, you've been in this location in the shopping centre. You might want to see an ad for that online and potentially down the line as well. The digital ads that we see in the real world could also change depending on what it knows about you and it knows about who, who's nearby and how many people are nearby. If you have a brand new cutting edge, top of the range iPhone, you're a certain type of person compared to someone who has a five year old, fairly basic Android phone. And that can be used to, to say something about you. But the other side as well is that your phone will then present you with information. So uh, for example, your phone might tell you if it knows you're near a certain shop, it might prompt you to open the app that you have on your phone from that shop or potentially it might prompt you with a, a, you know, a discount code from that shop. So sneaky and very hard to resist. Stay strong. Or you could head to Longford and do a little bit of manifestation. I can manifest literally anything. What's the best thing you've manifested? Yeah. What's the best thing you've... Oh, uh, new house at Willow, Wilder House at Willow Grove Cottage. Uh, manifest a name. Uh, manifest Mercedes there before Christmas. <laughs> did she actually? She did, yeah. Everyone, start manifesting immediately. It's great. Yeah. This is the way, <laughs> the way for. Okay, I gotta get back. Telling you, you'd almost give it a go. This week saw the death of accordion player and singer Seamus Begley at the age of 73. And so many people paid tribute to an accomplished musician and a man whose warmth and humour seemed to touch everyone he met. On Morning Ireland, Mary spoke to Donal Lunny. Seamus was larger than life and uh, I think everybody everybody I know is is, um, devastated by his passing. Uh, He's left, it leaves a huge uh, uh, void 
on the traditional scene because he occupied a great space and uh, he he was uh, a beloved man he, he uh, always up for the crack a, a kind of uh, as well as being a consummate musician being a native speaker and uh, being a beautiful singer as well as player uh, he uh, he was like uh, almost like a court jester like a joker and um, he was full of fun and satire and would subvert many uh, a solemn occasion with some ridiculous joke <laughs> which would bring the house down so he just uh, he he was a, a a mighty figure never missed a chance for a bit of crack and uh, um, he was beloved for that and for Sharon Shannon it was the loss of a very dear friend I absolutely adored him idolised him and um, his his music like oh um the po- amazing power in his music and he'd lift the roof off any pub or house session where, where and made just a dynamite atmosphere everywhere he went and um and then when he'd sing you know it was, uh, the most beautiful effortless singing oh my god you'd hear a pin drop in even the, the noisiest pub uh when he would start singing and then as well as all that, he was absolutely brilliant crack, really hilarious, um, incredibly quick-witted. And um, he'd make you cry cry laughing. You'd be belly laughing for hours. The most enjoyable t- times that I can think of in my whole life was always in his company. And on Drive Time, actor John C. Riley, who'd sung with Begley on Eileen Oag. But when they met, he didn't get the Hollywood treatment. You know, people that are impressed with the trappings of fame don't impress me very much. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, Seamus and I had a direct connection as men and as musicians. You know, not only was he easy to play with, but s- songs would just flow out of him like water. You know, it was incredible. We had uh, a couple of amazing nights in pubs together. A great raconteur as well between songs. Yeah, yeah, definitely. He was... <laughs> He, he was like uh, almost like a stand-up comedian with his ability to recall jokes. John C. Riley, but we will finish with the music. Claire was joined from the Dingle Peninsula by Philip King. When we come with some with some with some time to think about what his contribution is, he was a change agent in terms of traditional music. He made his first record in 1973 with his sister Marta. And I always remember Marta saying to me, Far Gweltat the Ashad James Toshi is a Gweltat Riev. He's a Gweltat man. He is of this particular place. In 1992, he made a game changing and tradition changing record with Steve Cooney. And it was all about rhythm and it was all about song. And, you know, he then passed that on with great generosity and he took the riches of this place and took them to world stages all over the world and he was greeted with warmth and kindness wherever he went and there was a welcome for him everywhere and he was the best of us. The late Seamus Begley and here he is with Steve Cooney on that legendary album Mel. That's it from this week's playback. Thank you for listening. Talk to you next week.